we are um, studying the entire book of Exodus, which is a large book, um, and we are not working through it page by page or verse by verse, but rather we're reading, reading large chunks and looking at the themes. So what we've been doing every time we've gathered on Sunday morning is we're reading uh, a pretty big chunk of scripture. Sometimes it's a couple chapters, and that's what we are going to do this morning. So bear, bear, bear with me as we read through this and see what the Lord has to say, and we look at some of these themes. But at this point in the narrative of Exodus, um, the children of Israel have been freed uh, from captivity, from Egypt, and they have crossed the Red Sea, which is what we talked about last. And now they are entering into uh, the wilderness, essentially, and we're looking at what happens in the immediate aftermath of the crossing of the Red Sea. So Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22, and we will read through the end of 17. So half of 15, all of 16, and all of 17. I'm reading from the ESV. If you don't have the ESV, that's okay, but I think it's still good to follow along. Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he, meaning Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palms, palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Chapter 16, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. That's, the, that's a name of a location, not like a, a descriptor. Okay, the wilderness of Sin. Um, so it's just a location. Uh, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by our meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, to kill, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain heaven, rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay about the ground. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. And when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it to the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. And when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the next morning. So they laid it aside to the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Tomorrow you will not find it in the field. In six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long? Will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, and when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord, to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for forty years. Till they came to a habitable land, they ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And omer is a tenth part of an ephath. Chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin, of sin by stages according to the camp, commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which with you have struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. 
and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and, and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. All right, so there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. Again, thank you for uh, following along and tracking with me. As we look at this text, and again, there's, there's a lot there that we could unpack, but we're going to be looking at the themes that we see in this text. So the children of Israel leave Egypt, and they cross miraculously the Red Sea, and the Red Sea closes behind them, and their enemies are defeated and uh, destroyed. So defeated and destroyed, never, never to return to, to bother the, the children of Israel again. And they head into the wilderness, and this first story takes place three days later. Three days later. We have three stories here. We have three stories, three points of, of grumbling. One was because they had water, but it was bitter. The second was because they were hungry, and they wanted food. And the third was there was no water, and they miraculously got water. What we see is... We see each of these three stories unfold in a very similar fashion. So let me just kind of walk through, and we can see how kind of the same things happen each time as the children of Israel uh, face these different crises. First of all, they, each story begins with a very natural need, um, hung, uh, either thirst or hunger. In the first story, they were thirsty, uh, and they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. And then the people grumbled by saying, what shall we drink? It was very concise. There wasn't an unpacking that's, uh, that's unfolded for us here, but simply, what shall we drink? And then the Lord worked. God showed Moses a log, and he threw it in the water, and it made the water sweet. Then it says that the Lord tested them. The theme of testing is in each of these three stories. It said that the Lord made a statue and a rule, it says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commands and keep his statutes, then I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So he provided for them, but not only did he provide for them, but he provided for them in a miraculous way. It's a supernatural act to have a log that the God says, put it in, and then I will do the work and make something bitter sweet. But then he provided for them even more. He led them to a place where they had uh, springs of water and palm trees, where they encamped. Now, remember, this is, this is 12, excuse me, this is 2 million people estimated. 2 million people. All right, so the Lord 
gave them water to drink in the moment because they were thirsty in the moment, but then he, he led them to even a better place to actually set up camp where there was an abundance of water. So this is better than where they were. The second story is the story of manna, which you may be familiar with, and it begins by saying, uh, we're hungry. They're in the wilderness, and they're hungry. The people grumbled, and they said, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by our meat pots and we ate bread to the full, which was not a true statement. That was not their situation in Egypt. They were, in fact, slaves, and they were very much oppressed and being killed by their oppressors, but they didn't remember that fact. But they were hungry, and so it changes their emotions, and it changes the way they interpret the facts. It changes their faith. They were hungry, but God works, and he says, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven. He's going to provide meat in the evenings by quail and bread in the mornings with manna through supernatural means. They're not going to run into a, a roaming flock or a roaming herd like, ah, we didn't expect this. But he's going to do something truly miraculous. Manna from heaven was not in their catalog of ideas of how God might provide for their need. It wasn't like, you know what God could do? He could make the dew turn into some sort of a bread product that we've never experienced before. And then it's going to melt at the end of the day. I mean, that wasn't in their catalog of things that God could do, but he did it, and he did it supernaturally. So after God provided, there's another testing where God says, I've done these things that I may test them for people to gather the bread in accordance with what God had said. That you, you gather just enough for you to eat, and you don't keep it over to the next day. If you do, it will rot, and it will have worms in it. But then there's very specific provisions. Of, I'm going to do this but you need to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to give you a day of rest. They hadn't had a day of rest as slaves. I'm going to give you a Sabbath, a day set aside for rest and for worship, and so you gather twice as much. And it will not spoil like it does every other day because I have set it up this way. But I'm doing these things to see if you will do what I, as God, have, have called you to do. It's, it's a test. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it well. Um... But not only did God provide for their momentary needs, but he did something greater, just like the first story. He provided for them for the next 40 years and had a memorial. He took the manna, they put it in a jar, and it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant later, we'll see, as a memorial. All right, the third story starts off with the grumbling. They're thirsty again. The people grumbled, and they said, give us water to drink. And then they questioned, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Was it to kill us, to kill our children, to kill our livestock with thirst? Once again, God worked. He commanded Moses to strike the rock, and the people drank. And this time, it doesn't speak of the Lord testing the people, but the people tested the Lord. Moses called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling, and because they, quote, they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Now, remember, they're asking this question with the physical manifestation of God because there is a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, ever-present. So this wasn't a looking around, thinking, what are we doing here? There was a physical manifestation of God's presence there, and they're still asking the question, is God among us or not? Which leads into a story of defeating the Amalek and the Amalekites. And just a little bit of background of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a group of people, aside from Egypt, the first enemies of God. And later in the Old Testament, you see this type of story unpacked where the Amalekites would come in 
uh, kind of like a horror story and pick off the people at the end of the line. They would, they would, they would the elderly and the sick, all right, a pretty despicable thing to do as this group of two million people were wandering through the wilderness. They would come in and kill off, <coughs> kill, kill people off. And so they were brought to a head and there was a great battle with the Amalekites and the Lord miraculously won the day. And this is a story for another day, but there's a curse on the Amalekites that they will be at war from generation to generation. Um, if you remember when we studied um, the book of Esther, and remember when we looked at Haman, Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites who hated the Jews. And so we see that centuries later um, unfolding. And so that's where it all began. So it ended with a miraculous uh, provision um, but also a miraculous victory. The children of Israel were armed, it says, when they left Egypt, um, but they were not trained for, for battle. And it was the Lord who won the day for them as they fought the Amalekites. The themes that we see in these three stories is that every story has a natural need. Either they're hungry or they're thirsty. Something that is normal, something that happens to you, something that happens to me, and something that happened to them. Each of these stories has a supernatural meeting of the need. So they have a natural need, hunger or thirst, and then there's a supernatural provision plus more. All right, so every, every story here is just not only a provision of food and water, but excessively more is added to it. Also with each of these stories, what we see is an increasing level of angst. And with each of these stories, the first one was very simply um, – where are we going to have water? And the second story was, did you bring us here to die? We had food. We had food in Egypt. And the third story is not a questioning, but the, st the sentence ends in a period, and it says, you have brought us here to kill us and our children. A an accusation. So increasing level of angst is what we see. And what we also see is that each of these three stories is exclusively about faith. And let me tell you how I drew this conclusion. Each of these stories is exclusively about faith because of the testing theme. So what we see here is God testing his children. Now, God testing his children is not a um, setting them up for a trap, but this is a rubber-meets-the-road moment. If you take a test in school, what happens is you are given information you're expected to, to, to consume that information. And then a test is the application of that information. Did you get it? Did you get it? It's a trial. You know, yes, yes or no. And in the academic setting, you're, you're graded on, on, on how, how well you got it. And though this is very, very much not an academic test, what we do have is a very clear instruction from the Lord. We have very clear teaching from the Lord, that I will set these up as a law and a statute, it says at the beginning of this text, all right, to see what you do. And I will do this, it says, to test you. And so he, he, he sets up the law, he sets up the statute, he says, this, I'm God, you're not, so I'm the one who's, who's setting the stage here. This is what you need to know, and this is what you need to do. But I'm not just throwing out information, I'm showing it to you. I'm, 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 I hesitate, I'm not going to say that God is pleading with them, but he is showing love for them, and he's showing compassion for them, and he's showing patience for them, and he is displaying his power. 
He could have ended the Egyptians in another way, but he displayed the magnificence of his power through the Red Sea. He could have done it differently, but that was like a, wow, look at what our God has done. As they're leaving Egypt, entering into the promised land where there's a whole bunch of other enemies there, there's lists of them. There's the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and you know, all these different types of people that they're going to have to defeat. And eventually when you see the unpacking of the Old Testament, they do by God's hand. Okay, so there's, there's tough times coming. Um, but God has done these things in miraculous ways. So he's proving it. He's made the promise. He's given the command. He's written the law. And then he's proven it. He has shown himself, not just in the pillar, not just in the fire, but he has said, I'm going to show you miraculously, you have a physical need, and I've made a physical promise, meaning I have promised you the promised land. All right, there's a place that when you stomp the ground, dust is going to come up. All right, so there is a promise physical land with territories, with boundaries, with buildings, with fields. All right, this is not some figurative, uh, I'm just going to take care of you, oblivion. Like There is a land that stretches from this landmark to this landmark to this landmark into this landmark, and it's yours. I'm giving it to you as God, okay? So there's a physical promise, and then they have a physical need. I'm actually hungry. I'm actually thirsty. And God said, do these things, and then he provided, even in their grumbling, miraculously, he provided for their needs. And then, so you have the written word, this is what you're supposed to do, and then he proves himself, now and act your faith. Act on your faith. Take these promises that you have that are in your mind, that are knocking around in your head, and determine, what am I going to do when I get hungry? What am I going to do when I get thirsty? Am I going to fall into grumbling? <clears throat> or am I going to trust? Am I going to have faith that you are going to do, you're going to follow through, God, with what you said you're going to do, and that I will one day receive this promise, this, this physical promise. So that he gave them an opportunity to have faith. And they, and they failed. So this is, this is it's, a, it's a failure story, in a sense. But since these stories are, in fact, about faith, I think it's important if we're going to try to figure out what does this text have to do with us, what is it exactly um, that these people, all right, in their context, in the Old Testament, were supposed to have faith in? Aside from just God saying what he has said, what are the promises that they are banking on? What is it that's, ba that's batting around in their head saying that I trust this thing that has been said to me? What we see in the book of Genesis is the Abrahamic covenant. And what God said to Abraham is, I will make of you a great nation, that you will inherit a promised land, that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, and I will be your God. I will be your God. Not just an entity to be worshipped, but a God who provides. Who provides. Who provides a, a land. Who provides a government. Who provides military dominance and who provides for the, the actual physical needs of hunger and thirst and shelter. A great nation, a promised land, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, and I will be your God. Now the physical elements of these promises are all pointing to a 
a spiritual fulfillment of these promises, okay? So in the Old Testament, they were promised physical things. They were promised an actual land primarily. But the promised land of Canaan uh, was designed to point them to a, a greater fulfillment, which we now know because we have the context of the whole Bible, that there is a new heaven and a new earth that is coming that is eternal. All right, so there's a promised physical land and territory that they have the right to look forward to. They have a right to want, that they have a right to expect, and that they have a right to even long for. However, the problem is, is that their faith cracked when they ran into physical needs as they were anticipating the physical fulfillment of these promises. It created a situation for the children of Israel where they actually said to God and about God and to each other and to Moses and to Aaron, I don't believe you're going to follow through. I don't believe you're going to follow through. Um, here's, to me, this is, this is kind of where it gets real. Because if we, have a, if we have an actual physical problem that we don't see and understand a solution to, nine times out of ten, the result is despair. So if you're in a situation where you're actually hungry, now I can't imagine in 2016 a situation where you'd actually be hungry unless you were stranded somewhere, you know, okay? So just kind of play this out in your head. If you're stranded somewhere and three days go by and you are truly famished and you're weak, like you're, you're physically weak, you're, you're, you're shaky, you can't stand up for long periods of time and you know that you are in a dangerous place. When that happens, it is natural for you to feel despairing. It's natural. When, when, you're, when you're thirsty, you hear, I mean, you hear stories when people are put in extreme situations where they are lacking hunger or they're lacking food or they're lacking water, where people change and they begin becoming very aggressive. Um, and combative for survival purposes because there's a physical need. And I think what we're seeing here is when there is a physical need where they don't understand how it's going to be met, it takes that natural step to despair, which is a very easy natural step to angst, which is a very easy natural step to rebellion, which is a very easy natural step to apostasy, which is a denial of God. And it all starts when a physical need is left unmet. And I think we have to see that here. I think a wrong interpretation of this text is those stupid children of Israel, why couldn't they read the writing on the wall? God had done these great things for them. Didn't they see him? Didn't they see God with the ten plagues? Didn't they see the pillar of fire? Didn't they see the splitting of the Red Sea? You know, they're, they're dumb. They're sheep. You know, they didn't get it. They're archaic. And though this is sad, and though they had opportunity for faith, as we have opportunity for faith, I think I get it. Because they had a problem of hunger and thirst that they did not see the solution to. 
And, I, and just as a side statement, how often is that our ultimate problem? That we have needs, and we're going to get into this later, but we also have a mind, and we have logic that God has given us, and we have a reason. And so we look at our career, and if it looks like it's dead end, then you're like, what is there for me here? Nowhere to go. Nowhere to advance. I'm going to start looking elsewhere. I don't like it here. Start kind of shutting down. You see where I'm going? I don't see how this ever is going to work out, so I am going to find my own solution. I'm going to, I'm going to create another way. I'm going to go to where the food is. And the children of Israel were saying, listen, our needs are not being met. And that turned to despair, which turned to angst, which turned to rebellion, because the, the third story here is listed several times throughout the rest of Scripture, pinpointing it as a very atrocious time of rebellion. The word rebellion is used in reference to this story at Massa and Meribah, where Moses hit the, hit the rock with his staff and provided water. So it led to rebellion, and rebellion leads to apostasy. So their faith was cracked because of a physical need. The correct faithful response, now let's not just chalk this up as a no-duh statement, okay? Let's think through their situation. The correct faithful response ought to have been that we have been made promises in the past. He has proven himself to be faithful, so therefore we are going to act and proceed and encourage each other convinced that God will do what he said he will do. And I don't know how. Faith is not putting your faith in a total understanding of how everything works out. But faith is putting your faith in a promise that had been made behind you and that it will become fulfilled in front of you at some point. Faith is what it looks like in the middle. Promises made, promises kept. But what happens in the middle is you get hungry. What happens in the middle is you get thirsty. And you don't see how those needs are necessarily going to be met all the time. Believing that God will, in fact, follow through. Faith is something that includes the intellect, the emotion, and the will. And maybe you've heard this before. Faith involves faith of the, of the intellect and the emotion and the will. Faith requires you to have the intellect, meaning you understand the facts. You've been given the information. You have something put your faith in. You can't have faith in something you haven't heard before. You can't have faith in something um, that doesn't, that you haven't been exposed to, right? That doesn't make any sense. The, the <coughs> intellect is the facts. The emotion is the turning of the heart, saying that my heart is convinced of these facts, and then it's acted upon by the will, saying that my actions, my attitude, and my thoughts will coincide with my intellect and my emotion, and it's going to show itself that faith has a look to it, that it's acted upon. A faith that is unacted upon is not a faith. A faith that is unacted upon is something that you, you hear and then maybe you consent to, but you don't act upon it. And so in the wilderness, what they had is the facts, and then they had this up and down emotion. I mean, we just read the Song of Moses in the text before. The Song of Moses is a great worship ceremony. <laughs> Look at what the what, like, look at what our great God has done. Did you bring us here to die? That's kind of the series of events. And so their emotion is up and down, but the enacting 
of faith on the promises crumbles, which is a, which is a sign of, of no faith. And what we see here are examples of how quickly we can question God and lose confidence when we have an, a, a, a natural need. What we all also see here, be, see here, because these are faith examples, is we see a faithfulness on God's part. So we see a faithlessness on the children of Israel, but we see a faithfulness on God's part. We see that God, he did in fact provide for their natural needs supernaturally, which is what makes God God. Now this is a, that's a, that's a rather simple statement, but if you're having conversations with people about who God is, one of the simple definitions of God is that God can do things that only God can do. That's what makes him God. So he's not just this really good person who's better at things than you, but there are things that God can do that only God can do, which make him God. So God can take a natural situation, natural situation where there is a lacking, there is a broken situation, there is no food, there is no water, and he can provide a solution through supernatural means. It makes sense. That's what God is, and that's what God does. But then God not only did that by providing for them supernaturally, but he provided above and beyond. So he not only provided water um, by throwing the log into the bitter water, but then he brought them to a place to encamp for two million people with, with, with enough spring water for everybody for a long period of time. And then he took them into the wilderness even further where they wanted food. And he provided quail, meat in the evening, and bread in the morning through manna and gave them instruction there. And in the third story, we see that they are longing for water again. And he gives them water, and then he defeats their enemies. Above and beyond, he defeats their enemies. What we also see here in God's faithfulness is we see proof here that there are physical promises that have made, been made to the children of Israel that are there by design to point to a greater promise. So there are physical promises saying a promised land is coming, but that's not the be-all, end-all. There's something greater coming. So I'm going to make this promise to you, but it's going, to, it's going to then point you to another promise, a greater promise, a better promise, a more fulfilling promise. At one point, I heard John Piper speak about these, these continued promises, and he referred to it as a mountain range, that you could be standing in Greenville, and you look up and you see the mountains, but beyond the mountains, you see another mountain. And the further away they get, they're, they're more and more hazy. So it's not as clear. But when you reach that first mountain and you look to the next one, the next one's a little bit more clear. Does that make sense? But it's still, it's still a little bit hazy. And what we see throughout the course of Scripture is something um, that we call, and we've talked about it in here, but we see progressive revelation. That God, throughout the course of, of the Bible, is progressively revealing himself. So not everybody in the course of Scripture knows all that we know now that Scripture has been completed. And so they didn't know what that hazy mountain exactly was going to look like, but that was part of the promise. And they were heading to the first mountain, which was the promised land. Flipping your Bibles to John chapter 6. And these stories are referenced by Jesus in John chapter 6. In the book of Exodus, we've continued to bring up the literary feature that is called type. Type. It's a literary feature which provides a foreshadowing of something greater coming. 
type in literature is something that is veiled or alluded to or is a shadow of something bigger and better and greater to be revealed at a later point. John chapter 6, uh, let's begin in verse 25. Now this is, this is a little bit of unpacking of this text here. But in John chapter 6, verse 25, what's just happened is, is Jesus has fed the 5,000 miraculously. <laughs> all right, He has fed 5,000 people, maybe more like 12,000 when you include children and women. All right, So that has happened in the very recent past. John 6.25 says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, meaning the people, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe, faith here, that you believe in him who has, whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Here's the kicker, all right? They said to Jesus, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. Quote, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, end quote. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because they said, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he, how does he now say that I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Same language as the wilderness. I lost my place. Thank you. Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That anyone who has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. And I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, that I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread who came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the flesh, for the life of the world, is my flesh. And it, and it, and it goes on and on. And so what we see here is Jesus himself 
making the connection to the fact that God did, in fact, provide for his chosen people by giving them bread. But it was a momentary provision for the promises that those people in the wilderness, in fact, eventually died, even though they received provision from God. And what Jesus is saying is that I am the greater fulfillment of the manna. I am the more clear version of what that is supposed to point people to, the provision that God had made a promise, and he will help you through, and, he will, and, then, and then he will fulfill that promise. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the bread of life. I am the bread that gives eternal life. And he's saying these things in a, in a spiritual sense, which we will unpack here in just a moment. That Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And that as God provided bread and thus life for the children of Israel in the wilderness, and as he led them to the promised land, So God provided the bread of life through Jesus to gain access into his eternal kingdom where there is true life to be found. So when it comes to promises, the children of Israel were promised physical things, physical promises pointing to a greater spiritual eternal promise. So the the manna was not the be-all, end-all. The promised land was not the be-all, end-all. It was through, all, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what we have now on the other side of Christ, where spiritual promises have been fulfilled, when King David comes later in the, in the Old Testament, we see something that we call the Davidic covenant that says one day a better king will come from the line of David, and he will rule over a better kingdom than what we have now. The pinnacle of the children of Israel in the Old Testament is life under David. They have massive success. They have massive wealth. Their enemies are afraid of them. He is a godly man, and he is leading them. But there's another promise after the Abrahamic covenant that says another king will come who will rule you, and he will be better than David, and you will have a kingdom that is better than the kingdom you have now. And what happened is we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ, where we had the Abrahamic covenant, and then we had the Davidic covenant, and what Jesus brought is something called the new covenant. See, we're walking through these mountains, and it's getting clearer and clearer. The promise isn't changing. It's becoming more and more clear on what the fulfillment looks like. And when Jesus Christ came, he came as a king to be king of a kingdom. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that this is speaking of a king and a kingdom in a spiritual sense, but a very real sense at the same time. So the children of Israel were made promises, and a lot of those promises were physical. And the physical promises were designed to point to real, spiritual, and eternal promises. And when Jesus Christ came after, before Christ and the physical promises were made where they had the promised land and then they failed again, we had the spiritual fulfillment of the promises. And we're living in a time right now that we call the already and the not yet, meaning that Jesus Christ has actually come and that he is actually king. And if you're a Christian, you're part of his kingdom. But there is still another mountain that is hazy out there. It is something that we call the new heaven and the new earth. That this is not the be-all, end-all. That there is something that we are still looking forward to. Where there is a joining of the physical and the spiritual promises in an eternal way. The new heaven and the new earth is an actual physical place, Scripture teaches us. It's not this 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 spiritual cloud that's floating up there that we call heaven and it's all 
harps and, and angels, but there is an actual location where the old earth will, will be cast away and the new heaven and the new earth will be promised to, 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 to Christ's followers. And in the new heaven and in, in the new earth, it says that there will be no more pain, there will be no more brokenness, there will be no more death, there will be no more sin, there will be no more despair, there will be no more need, there will be no more tears, that there will be a true glorified fulfillment of the broken nature of what we have now on this earth in a perfected way. I remember several years ago, um, we were in a staff meeting and somebody popped in a DVD and they wanted to show us some movie clip and it was scratched. Remember the, you still watch DVDs? It's all like streamed now, but so we tried to watch this movie clip on a scratch DVD and it just didn't work. Um, but what we did see was, can you see that? <laughs> and you saw, and you couldn't hear the, you couldn't hear the, the text, like you couldn't hear the script. And but the thing about a DVD is it would pause, and unlike a VHS tape from my childhood, it would be a, a clear image, but paused, and then it would kind of scoop forward. Does that make sense? And what I, what I think. This illustrates is that I think that we're living in a, in a broken CD world. That God has made creation and he's made it good, but it's broken as a result of sin and, and we're fallen. And on a scratch DVD, you can see, you can kind of get it at some level, but there's no way to get the scope of what it was designed to be with the character development and the, and the way the story is written. And you can kind of, you see, okay, I, I kind of see that, or maybe maybe I get where they're trying to go with this plot, but so you see images, and you can even be impressed with them. You know, good-looking movie stars, or or the costume design, or look at the cinematography, but you, you don't get the whole thing. You, you just can't, unless you have a perfected version of it. And what we're, what, what, what we're living in now is we've seen progressive revelation be fulfilled behind us as we see the children of Israel receive the promises that God gave them, that God did make them a great nation, that God did give them a promised land, that God did give them physical military success, and that God provided great kings in their great kingdom, but there's this continued broken nature that it was never all about that, though it was part of the continued promise, and that there is a spiritual fulfillment that is, has come in Christ but yet is still coming in that we one day, if you're a Christian, you have eternal life, but your body will still die. That you are living around the world, around this earth with, broken, with brokenness, with broken relationships. That you have a sin nature. That there are still cracks. And that our longing in our heart still needs to be placed on the future fulfillment of the new heaven and the new earth. Where there will be no broken relationships. That there will be a fulfilled uh, a fulfillment of all of creation. And the call on our life right now is that we look forward to the fulfillment of the promise and that when we meet the time of spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst now, that we attack it with the faith that is expected of us. Now that, that might sound a little harsh, but I believe that we are, because new promises have been made through the new covenant, and what we don't see in the New Testament is we don't see really 
physical promises being made to us anymore. We don't see that we are promised a new land as Christians. We are not promised uh, military success as the children of Israel were if they lived faithfully to God. That we are not promised that we're not going to actually physically be hungry. You look at Christians in persecuted countries and like, they are hungry. I'm literally hungry and oppressed. The, the, those Christians that have the same promises that you have. And what we don't see in scripture is, in the New Testament, is that you're going to be getting really anything. You're not really promised. doesn't mean you're not going to get it, but you're not. The part of the promise is not the provision for stuff. But what, what is promised is a spiritual provision. We've been made spiritual promises. And that if you are lonely in a spiritual sense, in a relational sense, in a, maybe a non-tangible way, that, that, that because of what Christ has done for us and the ident identity that we are all supposed to seek in him, that we can find a fulfillment of that for now. A fulfillment of that for now, which will be fulfilled in a greater way later that doesn't make sense to us. And so what happens is we struggle with the same things, just not actual hunger and thirst. But I believe that in, in our era, what we struggle with are much more spiritual needs that we don't see how they're going to be met. And maybe it's your career. You know, I don't see how I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go anywhere. And so therefore, if, if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to do what I need to do. And if that's maybe being a little bit unethical or maybe undercutting somebody, um, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that just because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That's what everybody's doing. And if I, I have to move forward somehow or relationally, you know, I don't see anybody in my future. And I don't know the solution to that. So I'm going to compromise or I'm going to do things I ought not do. I'm going to date people I ought not date or I'm going to fall into different levels of, of despair because this doesn't make sense to me. But it's not just a provision in the here and now, but that one day all of that will be fixed. All of that, there'll be a, a fulfilled version of, of all of that and it doesn't completely make sense to us because that mountain is still a little hazy. I don't know what the new heaven and the new earth is gonna look like completely. We see a lot of things in scripture and I love my wife, and I love the relationship that I have with my wife. And when it talks about heaven not being bound in marriage, like, I don't, I don't understand that. But do I believe what the promises have said, that that is coming, that it, it, in, in God's supernatural way, it'll be better? That's hard. It's hard because I, 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 don't, I can't write a Bible study on that. I don't, I don't know how to explain that to you, um, but it is a promise that we've been made. And so it's not hunger and thirst, but now it's identity and relationship and fulfillment and peace. And that's why if you're a Christian and you've seen people, this is hard, but you've seen people who walk through desperate times 
uh, where bad things happen, where relationships are broken through disease or death or divorce, and their faith is in the future promise, and they still have something that the world doesn't have, peace, or long-suffering, or rest, or joy in a joyless time. And that's why you can look at the third world, and you can look at the persecuted church, and you can see things that the rich in America long for, meaning to life, and joy in, in spite of, of slums and being kicked out of their families. <coughs> and you see the wealthy in America struggling with depression and suicide, perhaps, because they're looking for answers to their problems in the wilderness, and they're grumbling and rebelling in apostasy. And so as we look at this text, this text is, is all about what does faith look like? That there's a promise that's been made and that there's a fulfillment coming, but in the middle, you just might be hungry. And that's the test. The joy can be found in the coming fulfillment of the promise, that we're, it's, in the, it's already but not yet. It's coming, but it's not here. They're in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. But God has done great things. He has made great promises, and we can trust that. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us with this. These are difficult things and difficult passages. And we look at a story in the Old Testament where it just seems like uh, failure. But, Father, we see examples of your faithfulness, and we see examples of what faith is supposed to look like. And, Father, I thank you that we have the added value of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us with these things. And Father, for the Christians that are in this room, I ask that you would help us as we work through our hungry and thirsty times and that our longing would not be just meeting our momentary needs, but our longing would be on the, fulfilled, the coming fulfillment of the promises that you've made to us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.